We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo, we're back. We're back. It's damn good to be here with you. I know, I know. It's... Feels Damn. Like it's, it feels like it's been a while, but it's, you it, it, it know, always feels it's like it's been a schedule. while because I can't get enough of this. <laughs> I know, I know. I am excited yeah. to do this with you yeah. every time Same. Same, that bro. we get here. Same. Yeah. And I want to give a big thank you to everyone who has taken a little bit of a time out of their busy lives to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. A lot of the comments and feedback are pretty inspiring and really uplifting. We truly can't thank you guys enough for that. Dawn, I'm kind of curious, what are folks saying about Midwest Murder? Well, Trophy Wife 957 says, authentic. If someone wants to listen to a podcast that is going to be authentic, this is it. I appreciate the rawness and realness of the storytelling. You don't sugarcoat. You don't downplay, filter what happened. You tell the story historically as it happened. You both have soothing and pleasant voices as well as perfect enunciation. Great job. And five stars. Thank you. Well, thanks, Trophy Wife. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's that's super cool. And then SDI83 gave us three stars. Three stars. Usually great, but yikes. I love true crime as much as the next person, and I usually really enjoy listening because of the storytelling and the local shout outs. However, episode 23 was a big capital nope for me. I acknowledge that you give content warnings and I'm all for laying out the facts of a case, but this time it was too much for me. The graphic nature of these crimes against children, come on now, you can tell a story without needing to emphasize every horrendous detail. So unnecessary. Isn't it striking how different those two reviews are? And they both came in the wake of episode 23, which was a pretty dramatic episode. And episode 23 was not easy for either of us. Jonah and I had to hug that one out, and which we said in the last episode too. Look, there's like a five minute pause in the recording of that episode where we basically sat here in silence and Mm -hmm. cried. So it's never easy for us. And I, I have to say it's... You, you acknowledge, first of all, thank you for the review. Second of all, you acknowledge that, you know, we do give the content warnings and all that stuff. Um, there is nothing that we couldn't not share in that episode because it was all absolutely awful. And unfortunately, um, I mean, this, that story deserves to be told, you know, and it's as disgusting and vile and horrible as it is. Mm, you just gave me you chills. Know? Yeah. And, and I, 
I'm I'm never going to shy away from the details again. It's in, it's in our intro, and uh, we appreciate everybody who takes the time. I'd only say uh, SDJ83. I wish you would have reviewed on one of the 22 previous episodes where it wasn't too much for you and you truly loved it. Uh, but regardless, guys, we appreciate your time. We think it's great to see your uh, reviews out there. That's why we'll continue to read them before each episode of Midwest Murder. I'd like to give a big shout out and thank you to the people who have supported this podcast. See J. Wynn for her help in writing the intro, Eric Anderson for the recording of the spooky and excellent intro music, and our graphic designer, Pop and Dot from Duluth, Minnesota. Bam, Pop and Dot, thanks for the killer Midwest murder logo. And I also want to recognize today's uh, episode sponsor is the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot. That's the DVCC in Minot. You can find them on courageforchange.org and the crisis line number. If you or anyone you know is experiencing domestic violence in your life, the crisis line for the DVCC Minot is 701-857-2200. And a big reason why we're partnering with them and and they're advertising um, here with Midwest Murder is we need to create more awareness that there are opportunities for people facing these difficult circumstances to rid themselves of this violence or to find a way to work through it. Unfortunately, violence only continues to escalate if it remains unchecked. If you don't have a plan in place either for your own safety or for how to work your way through this situation, that's where the DVCC can call. It, it doesn't have to be, the DVCC might not done, it doesn't have to be a place that you wait to call until something violent has happened to you. If, if, if those things are there, you can cut it off at the past, right? Or, or, you know, find a way to, to manage this terrible situation. And, and we're going to see, unfortunately, in, in this episode today, we're going to see some, some really terrible things. And the, the, there are women in this story who would have, vastly benefited from a call to their domestic violence crisis center. They're there to help. And you may think that you're alone, but you're not. And, and they, they do amazing work yeah. and they're there to help you. Violent behaviors will rarely change on their own. If you or someone you know is stuck in a cycle of violence, please contact the domestic violence crisis center at courageforchange.org. Their crisis line 701-857-2200. So in this episode, Don Palumbo, we're traveling back to one of my favorite years. Yeah. I mean. Nin- 1999. For those who remember, 1999 was literally the end of times. The Y2K panic was in full swing. And boy, did I have a banging New Year's party. Oh, man. We did, too. That year. We did, too. That was, it was, you know, because we just didn't know. And then all of a sudden... It comes and goes, and we made we're it. in 2021. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> that was- Blink, we're in 2021. <laughs> right. The music sharing service Napster launched, forever changing the landscape of how we consume music. Bill Clinton was getting impeached for fooling around with Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. I did not have sexual relations with, with that, that woman. woman. With a thumb point. Yes, yeah. it was the... Yeah. The now iconic cartoon Family Guy made its debut on Fox. Cinema, as we know it, took a huge leap forward with the release of The Matrix, and 1999 also saw the debut of SpongeBob SquarePants and the revival of Star Wars with Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Barry Winchell, a private in the U.S. Army, dies after being attacked by his fellow soldiers for having a relationship with Calpurnia Adams, a transgender showgirl. 
Lots of dramatic dramatic events involving NATO. Slobodan Milosevic indicted for war crimes in Kosovo, bombings in Yugoslavia, the accidental bombing of a civilian convoy in Albania that left 75 civilians dead, another bombing at the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, killed three and injured 20. Severe weather events, including landslides, flash floods, cyclones, and earthquakes, killed Tens of thousands of people across the globe in Greece, Taiwan, Turkey, Colombia, India, and other regions. I believe it was exceeding 30,000 people uh, that year died from My these goodness. weather events. Nancy Mace became the first female to graduate from military college at the Citadel in South Carolina. I'm sorry, was this 1949 that we're talking about or is it 1999? Okay, 1999. let's move on. Yeah, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, are killed in a plane crash. Oh, man, I remember that, too. It it, was... And that one gives me goosebumps because I can't help but wonder, is that the most cursed family it in the history be. of mm-hmm. planet Earth? Yep. And if there's a weird situation where somewhere in this timeline or in their history that someone made some crazy deal, it's, it's just wild. It's, it's wild. wild to see so how much, much tragedy in that, in that family. And, and, and so much stardom, so much, you know, people at the top of right. it's, it's wild. Right. It's a wild, wild story. And yeah. Lance Armstrong wins his first Tour de France. That was his 86th time entering the Tour de France. His first win came in 1999. We all know how that one goes. Everybody was doing it. He just got caught. I wouldn't take anything away from Lance Armstrong personally. Um, And going back to um, Kennedy's, I think Joe Kennedy... I think he made a deal with the devil somewhere. I mean, some That's voodoo. There's some yeah. some voodoo or something in he there, made man. Something happen. If, if there's ever a situation or a family in life that may have been involved with some sort of deal, man, it could be them. Easily just given the those, okay. those 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 tragedies. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, we're experts over here. <laughs> so it's a, yes, armchair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the date in our story is May 26th, 1999, the small lake town of Moose Lake, Minnesota. Right at DJ's Expressway Conoco. And the only person working the late night shift at DJ's Expressway is young Katie Poirier. She's 19 years old. And sadly, whatever dreams she has for the future are soon coming to an end. Sometime just after midnight, a witness phoned the police to report the store was empty. The lights were on. Everything was looking open for business. But the store was eerily unattended. When officers arrive on scene, the first thing they do after clearing the store is check the security tape. And yes, I said tape as in VHS for those of us old enough to remember what those are. I'm assuming at least the majority of our listeners. Right. right. Naturally, the video is grainy and it's super difficult to see any major details which was really frustrating for investigators who watched the tape over and over and over, hoping to discern something of value. The video would have been almost useless if not for NASA. NASA? Like the space? Space NASA? The same one, Don Palumbo, the space agency (laughs) NASA. This was the level of quality you could get from the videotape recordings in a lot of places way back then. Wow. With the help of NASA and the camera time logs, following the 1996 terrorist bombing at the Atlanta Olympics, you remember? 
Mm-hmm. NASA mm-hmm. developed a new technology dubbed Visar for video image stabilization and registration. They worked with the FBI to get this going. The software allowed them to brighten, sharpen, stabilize, and enhance images. Now, they were able to get this to NASA like immediately. And of course, there's this is this this whole thing transpires really really fast mm-hmm. this isn't like oh it took us months no they got this to nasa right away within within days and they were able to get an image so with the help of nasa as well as the camera time logs well and, and i'm sure sorry to interrupt no, but no. I, i'm sure the you know the the video was you know vhs vhs tapes were grainy anyway but usually the surveillance tapes are like recorded over multiple 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 times so that would make it even worse i'm guessing oh yeah it was terrible and and, and they've been working on this software for three years now and they had gotten pretty dang good at it and they this this software was used to help solve a bunch of different crimes hmm, and, and it, it, yeah no it's idea. pretty really key in this one yeah i thought it was interesting because the first time i came across it obviously we get you flash forward to the modern age and there's right. pretty pretty high-tech cameras here's everywhere a, but yeah here's a thumb drive and you're good right? yeah right yeah. so they were able to confirm a few things through that that one that katie poirier was forcibly ushered out by a white male wearing jeans a baseball hat and a throwback yankees jersey with the number 23 this happened at approximately 11 40 p.m his hand was on the back of her neck and it looked as though a cord was tied around her throat so of course officers responded immediately immediately to that call and quickly realized they have a missing person case on their hand Finding anything or anyone in the dead of night on the busy interstate town of Moose Lake was going to be all but impossible. Moose Lake itself only had around 2,200 residents at the time, but it's a busy little place situated near the Wisconsin border, just 45 minutes south of Duluth. Moose Lake is also a very densely forested area in northern Minnesota, and it's a favorite travel destination for sportsmen. An extensive search plan was put into motion. Hundreds of people answered the call to action. Investigators and volunteers spread through the forest like wildfire, hopeful to find any sign of Katie Poirier. Tracking dogs and helicopters were used. Among the first to be interviewed in the investigation is Catherine Hannock. She works in the subway shop connected to DJ's Expressway Conoco. The two stores are separated by a connected door. On the night of Katie's disappearance, just before 10 p.m. closing time, A man staggered into Subway and tried to enter DJ's through the connecting door. Hannock told the man to leave and to enter DJ's through its own external entrance. After closing, Hannock left Subway at around 10.30pm. As she walked to her car, which was parked behind the dumpsters at the rear of the building, she encountered the same man from just 30 minutes earlier. He appeared to be pacing back and forth on the sidewalk. He stumbled, couldn't walk straight. And if Katie had to guess, he was likely drunk. When he noticed Katie, he asked her a question that made her skin crawl. Are you done for the evening? Ugh. Don't. Don't don't ever use that voice again. Ooh. It really creeped her out. She told him she was and kept her distance as the man then got into a dark-colored pickup truck and left. Hannah got into her car to leave and coincidentally started driving in the same direction as the pickup truck, following behind with no vehicles in between. Hannock followed the truck for approximately two miles before it pulled into a cafe parking lot 
and Moose Lake, and she continued to drive on. Catherine Hannock was able to offer a few additional details. The truck was a Ford F-150 extended cab with white markings on the side. The first three numbers of the license plate were 557, and the last letter was Y, and he had lighter colored hair. She believed he was younger, maybe around 25. So now the, the abductor was estimated to be around 5 foot 10 with lighter colored, longish hair, weighing approximately 170 pounds and looked to be about 25 years old. A composite sketch was drawn. Police circulated the image on dozens of newspapers and news stations throughout the area. So were they able to, were they able to, um, like, is that just her description or is that kind of what they're seeing on the camera as well? It's so it's a bit of both. Really good so it's, question. So they're, so they're matching, they're, they're matching basically. They're matching the two. They brought in uh, an FBI height, like a scientific height expert who specifically studies how tall people are based upon their camera angle and where sure. they are on the camera. Like this, th- there's a science of that, right? How? And side sidebar here. Right. How do you do that? It's really specific. And, and like, hmm, Science, that, guy, that guy appears to be 5'11". I think it's because his shoulders angled this way. Like, first of all, seems super nerdy, but totally cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, really specific. Yeah. And it's I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean that like any offense to any scientists out there on that. Stuff. No, it's incredible. It seems super nerdy and mathy. And, and again, we're not Midwest math, but that's super duper cool. Yeah. So b- between him, the, the, footage captured and her description that's what they kind of build this composite sketch from as tips were called in the investigation in the surrounding area was turning up very little in spite of the tracking dogs helicopters and massive help from locals nothing katie's abduction quickly became a high profile missing persons case her image was shared to major regional newspapers, and they even got her image on billboards. This is all within days of the abduction. They've got her image up on billboards within very quickly. Moose Lake just so happens to be home of a Minnesota state-run facility for sex offenders. Of course it does. It houses hundreds of the most vile and heinous sex offenders in the state. To this day, to this very day in 2021, no one has ever been released from that facility. No way. The inmates there are deemed as sexually dangerous persons with sexual psychopathic personalities. The kind of violent sexual predators who are too deadly for freedom. So basically, you know, the ones that are committed for life because of because they are so dangerous. Yes. Whoa. So, 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 Whoa. so scary. I know. I didn't. I didn't My hair know. standing on end. I did not know such facilities existed, and there's two of them, I believe, in Minnesota. In Minnesota, I mean, you know, we for for North Dakota, we have um, people in the state hospital. That's where we commit them. So that's that's fascinating. Alas, all of the inmates there were accounted for. Investigators felt good about the lead they developed from Catherine Hannock, however. And using the partial plate number along with the vehicle description, police compiled the list of potential owners and went to the houses where those vehicles were registered to. Most of those leads didn't go anywhere. Even the most promising of those was stymied when Amy Blum told officers that she and her husband sold their black truck some time ago. By June 6th, 
The sprawling search and investigation had covered nearly a 10-mile radius, and police called off the official search. Katie's family, along with volunteers, kept the effort going strong. They established a headquarters at Hope Lutheran Church with a huge map on the wall. And every day the search continued and the areas covered were marked with an X on the map. They set up a booth at the state fair and passed out flyers and were vocal in their belief that it had to be someone local and that perhaps someone who owned a cabin in the surrounding area, perhaps it was someone who owned a cabin in the surrounding area. The abduction, they felt, was bold, and it was caught on camera. Someone would recognize this man. They just had to keep up with the public pressure. Man, I hope if I ever go missing that this is what people do for me because this is such a hardcore and dedicated effort. We're, uh, it's, it's June 6th. We're not more than a week removed from her abduction, and, and you know your daughter is gone, and like I'm sitting here thinking about how tough it would be to set up a booth for my missing kid at the state fair. Yeah, That's yeah. emotional. I know, big time. And it's and we could get in we could get into it as especially with the, you know, the most recent abduction and murder of um that young woman. Gabby yeah, thank you. Um it, this happens every day and only this this happens every day and and not everybody is getting this type of attention, no. you know, and and that's the that's the the sad part. So I I agree with you. I hope. Yeah. I'll I'll lead the effort, Jonah. I'll lead the effort if you if you go missing. Eventually, the police turned to a Minnesota Twins baseball icon, Paul Molitor, for help. What? Yeah, right. What? So, sidebar: Paul Molitor was elected to the Hall of Fame in two thousand four. So, just to be clear, this guy is a really big deal in the um, world of baseball yeah. and the state of Minnesota, and. Just Huge. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Paul Molitor. I'm yelling at you right yeah. now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's, <sighs> I had no idea. Twins fans and baseball fans, probably this guy, a great player, great manager, I guess, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So investigators figured their suspect was a sports fan and that perhaps a public service announcement coming from the voice of a baseball legend would make a difference. And they specifically kind of call, had him call out the jersey because that jersey wasn't like your average every day i went to the mall and bought a jersey today no it's a throwback it's got specific colors and it has a number on it so i didn't i couldn't find what what his psa was but he reads this psa it's blasted all over the state but still at this point now more than two weeks have passed and there is still no sign of katie poirier but the effort paid off when an employee from the minnesota veterans home called the tip line to report his co-worker, Donald Hutchinson, resembled the composite sketch. And Donald recently stopped driving his black truck. And he didn't show up to work for two days after the kidnapping. Oh mm-hmm. He also said Donald Hutchinson was sporting a new short haircut. And then he abruptly quit his job as a janitor without notice in the weeks following Katie Poirier's disappearance. Well, there we go. Ooh, boy. And it was all the ad from Paul Molitor. That's the ad this guy heard that compelled him to call in. Very cool. Just, wow. just It's just wow. so unexpected in a murder story to hear something like that. Hmm. When investigators dug into the identity of one Donald Hutchinson, they learned his current name was 
actually Donald Blum. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Wasn't that Amy Blum? It was indeed Amy Blum, Don Palumbo. All it right. was indeed Amy Blum who they chatted with a little earlier. I am I am paying attention. Ooh, boy, look that? at okay. you. Donald Hutchinson, formerly formerly who is currently Donald Blum, had taken his wife Amy's name. Mm. But his real name, the one given to him at birth, was Donald Albin Pence. And Donald Pence has a long, terrible history of predatory sexual violence. Of course he does. Investigators would eventually come to learn Donald went by many different aliases in his life. He was born on February 5th, 1949. He was abused by his father throughout the duration of childhood up to the age of 13. By the time Blum reached high school, he was a heavy drinker with clear behavioral issues. By the time he was a sophomore, Blum was sent off to reform school. Well, and again, so this is, okay, you know, 60s, right? Yeah. Early 70s. We don't. Yeah, he grows up in the 50s and we, th- we into the certainly 60s. Don't, we certainly don't talk about, um, you know, the abuse. And so you just deal with it and you cope and you become an alcoholic and then you repeat because that's what you've been conditioned to or what you've been taught and behavior issues because, hmm. Well, you never handled your shit because we didn't allow people to. No, not at all. Right? I mean, so, oh, dear. I mean, I mean imagine. I'm not, no, I'm I'm not mean, saying, I'm not saying like, well, see, you know, if, if without that, he wouldn't. Have, I mean, that's not what I mean. And I'm not giving him an excuse. But holy shit, we were so bad at this as a society. We're we, not, we're not perfect now. Either. No, certainly not. Oh, my gosh. And, and it's, it's, it's scary in all of this every time seeing how somebody was treated and again, it's, anyways, it's it's crazy. He did not have a great life growing up. And I, I go into school after you got your ass kicked by your dad all night, just having to go, yeah, mm-hmm. I, care, I care about spelling. Mm-hmm. Record of Donald Blum surfaces again in about 1975 when he kidnapped a 14-year-old girl, gagged her, and raped her. Oh, that poor baby. Afterward, he locked her in the trunk of his car, but she managed to escape and turn him in. Blum went to trial and was convicted. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. And he was released after three years. What? Yeah, uh, yep. Seems normal. Why do we... Why did we... Like, I'm shaking my fist right now. I'll say it again. <laughs> sentenced to 40 years in prison and released three. after three years. Like and shame on... The whole system, the, the, the right entire there. system. You know, it's it's very similar to Kyle Bell. You know, he was he was sentenced to eight years and served three weeks, or something similar. Remember, it's so triggering. You know, it's like, why? Why were we covering for so much sexual predatory behavior? <sighs> and I and I want I want to drill down just a little bit because in 1983, Blum was arrested again for criminal sexual conduct really weird i can't why i would never guess he would be arrested again it won't because i mean you're totally reformed and and, you know rehabilitated after three years right and what what if any type of rehab was even happening for those three years anyways it was just punishment punishment. exactly and it's just the carelessness of how sexual violence 
particularly toward women and children, has been handled by our justice system throughout the past is really an abomination. Yeah. And time and again, records show how sexual assault and violence was not taken seriously in this case and in many others. And it's still happening today. And I just want to bring attention to this because it's something that means a lot to me. And again, as uh, with someone like the DVCC as our partner, according to a story from The Atlantic written by Carolyn Mims Nice, there are an estimated 200,000 untested sexual assault kits in the United States. The Scientific American says, quote, these cardboard boxes contain envelopes filled with hairs, skin cells, semen, clothing, and other forensic evidence collected from survivors after they report a sexual assault. They said it is a trove of crime-solving data that could be used to convict more criminals. And guys, right here today as we record this episode, it is just sitting there. I... I have so much I want to say in this uh, this whole topic. The, the the biggest thing, you know, kind of going back, you know, to when you said how records show that sexual assault and violence, you know, is not taken seriously. It a lot of times it still isn't. It still isn't taken seriously, and it's it's the uh, it, it's the whole. Well, the victim has to, you know, well, she's lying. I mean, did you know? Did you see how drunk she was at the party? Like, did you see how she was dressed? And then you've got it on the on the flip side of. You know, that that dumb shit that um, uh, Brock, what's his face, that that raped the Turner. college girl, Brock right. Turner. Yeah. Well, it might ruin his swimming career if he goes to prison. It might ruin his life. Hey, guess what? You know, and so we that wasn't that long ago. And we're, no. we're still we're still doing this and we're still treating victims differently and unfairly. Oh, it pisses me off. It needs to stop, Clearly. and I felt compelled enough to mention it here on Midwest Murder Guys because, again, these are things that, to me, are relevant to this case. They're relevant to other cases that that we found here that a lot of these people become uh, turned into murders. Well, and if we can, but if we can change the way we treat victims, if we can actually hold these people accountable, then and test the the rape kits or the, pardon me, the sexual assault kits, then. And, and and we can actually do those things. Sure. In a perfect world, it would never happen again. We would catch all of them. Right. But if we change the way that we deal with these things and the way that um, they're handled, I, I feel we can make a difference. The way they're handled. And I'd say that all of us uh, teach our boys to, to, to treat our, our, to treat everybody better, including women. Because unfortunately, again, most of these crimes are being committed by men. Now back to Donald Blum. Blum's marauding appetite for carnal brutality continued unchecked into 1983 after that arrest and in spite of his record as a sexual predator. Later, that same year, Blum was walking down a rural road when he was picked up by two petite young girls, ages 15 and 16, who offered him a ride. The horror of that kindness will forever haunt those girls. 1983. And it's just, yeah. we were just being nice. It's just what we did. After offering him a ride, Blum got in the backseat of their car and they continued to drive. At some point, Blum pulled out a knife, threatened the girls, and told them where to drive. Blum directed the girls to a remote wooded area and made them exit the car, still threatening them with the knife. He then forced them to walk into the woods by holding them by the backs of their shirt collars with the knife in the other hand. Once in the woods... He tied them up with shoelaces, gagged them with socks, and attempted to rape them. During the assault, he began choking one of the girls to the very brink of death. Once she passed out, he started choking the other girl, 
He was drunk and he toyed with them in this way for a while until miraculously the two girls were rescued when an officer noticed their car was parked in the wrong direction on the road. Blum was scared off by the approaching officer and fled the scene. He dyed his hair and managed to evade arrest for several months before being identified by one of the girls. He was caught and ultimately convicted under the name Donald Pence. On February 27th, 1984, the trial court sentenced Pence to concurrent terms of 54 months for the kidnapping and 81 months for the criminal's sexual misconduct to be served consecutively to three prior unexpired sentences for which Pence was on probation at the time he was arrested. Now, here in 1984, unfortunately, Minnesota had some of the most lenient sexual assault penalties in the United States. Well, I think that's evident. <laughs> yeah. He was given a supervised release. Oh, my. In 1989. So uh, five years later, he's uh, five plus deep here. And in 1991, <sighs> Donald married Grace Ann Hutchinson. He took her last name, of course. But when she learned of his criminal past, she got an annulment. I guess the real, pli- the real prize for him was that he got to keep her last name. How creepy is that? That she divorces him because she finds out he's this weird sexual predator and then he still gets to keep her last name after the annulment. Well, luckily she got away. And luckily she is, you know, high five to you, Grace, because you got the F out as soon as you realized what kind of monster this guy is. So in summary, this man has had multiple identities and was first convicted in 75 for aggravated assault on a 15-year-old. Later that year, he was convicted of kidnapping and raping a 14-year-old girl. In 81, he was convicted of attempting to sexually assault a 13-year-old, convicted for both the 15 and 16-year-old in 1983. Blum was examined extensively. Hang on a minute. I'm so sorry. Yeah. This is why people don't come forward. Yeah. Because if I were here, if that were me, I'd say- If that were your children- what is the point? These, these are your these these are someone's daughters. And time and again, this guy was set out and his punishments not taken seriously time and again, and he kept doing it. It is so crazy how any judge, how any man, anyone with a woman they love in their life could could face this guy and be like, yeah, let's just let him back out. Oh, I guess, I guess the laws, uh, the, the laws say this is just a misdemeanor because it happened to a minor. I, I don't know. This it's is, crazy. This is, this is why victims don't come forward. Well, okay, please go on. I'm so sorry. Blum was examined extensively by a psychologist in 1992. The conclusion, Donald Blum is highly likely to engage in violent, hurtful behavior again if he's not closely monitored. Do you think so? He was ultimately released on some form of light parole after five convictions for sex offenses involving kidnapping, rape, and assault. Now, here we are in 1999. Following the tip from his co-worker on June 18th, Donald Blum is now at the heart of this investigation. He's married. He's employed until recently. He's a stepfather. And he's been living under the radar with a new identity from his current wife, Amy's last name. Something Blum did time and again throughout his life was change his name and change his appearance after the assaults. No one in the quiet community around Moose Lake had any idea who he really was. And he was there for years. 
As investigators began interviewing people closely related to Blum, things continued to stack against him. Donald Blum owned property in the area of Carrick, approximately 10 miles from the convenience store where Katie Poirier was kidnapped. Neighbors said Blum spent a lot of time there, but they hadn't seen him in the weeks following the abduction. Katie Poirier also matched the profile of the other women Blum assaulted. Although investigators had a grim feeling they may never find Katie Poirier, officers felt very confident this was their man. Detectives worked quickly to obtain search warrants for Blum's residence as well as his lake property. Once the warrants came through on June 18th, Blum's house of cards collapsed almost immediately. Sheriff Phil Hotup was among the lead investigators on the case. In fact, it was him who helped identify the rare throwback Yankees jersey worn by Blum and subsequently solicited the baseball star to send out the PSA. When he arrived at Blum's house with a warrant to make an arrest, he was disappointed to find the house empty. However, when law enforcement entered the garage, they discovered a black Ford F-150 hidden right there, almost in plain sight. So imagine when the officers came up that day to find that house that he was right there. But So when they searched the vehicle in it, there's a receipt for gas at DJ's Expressway convenience store. It also reeked of bleach and had clearly been cleaned top to bottom. When you say um, when you say that the house was empty, do you mean like he had beat feet? Like yeah, there's nobody there. Like yep. just people that like he obviously still lived there. Like yes, he oh, still okay. lived. Yep, yep. He okay. he lived there, but there was no, no was nobody home. was there. Nobody okay. was home, but they had the warrant, so they were able to go in yep. and still do what sure. they had to do. Mm-hmm. And they find that F one fifty. And I just thinking back to when they came and interviewed Amy Blum, that F one fifty was sitting right there. But right. that's that's all you can do. That's all you can do. Yeah. So the race to find Donald Blum was on, and Sheriff Hodep was hot on the trail. He quickly learned Donald Blum was camping somewhere in Minnesota. Blum's lake's lake property was secured by law enforcement that same night, and a massive 12-hour search was conducted the following morning on June 19th. Essentially, investigators searched from sunup to sundown. Sadly, there was no sign of Katie Poirier on the property. But agents did find several guns, and since Blum was technically a felon on parole, it was illegal for him to possess firearms. It was enough to make the arrest in addition to all the other suspicion that these guys have. Meanwhile, Sheriff Hodep and his team pursued leads across the state, hoping to find Donald Blum at a campsite. The effort was nonstop. He went from Moose Lake down to Bemidji. Then he got word the Blum family was spotted in Cass Lake, so he went there. Still no sign of Donald Blum. Finally, intel from the Twin Cities sent Sheriff Hodep to Alexandria. Now, he's doing this while the other team is searching the lake property. There's all these other guys going out trying to find Donald Blum at a campsite. It was midnight on June 20th by the time Sheriff Hodep arrived at Donald Blum's campsite. Now, the only thing between this investigation and its primary suspect was a zipper and a tent flap. Ooh, dang. The police questioned Donald Blum about Poirier's abduction, and he had denied any involvement. He said he had been at his property near Moose Lake on May 14th or 15th and again on June 12th. Blum said that on May 26th, he left work early and went fishing on the Kettle River, a mile or two south of Sandstone. But he claimed he was home in Richfield by between 7 and 8 p.m. And his wife backed up his statement. 
He was cooperative, but refused to talk any further without a lawyer present. Okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to trying to decide if she's if she's good or not. I haven't decided. Okay. Stay tuned, my friend. Okay. okay. Donald Blum was arrested on June 20th. The following day, he was identified in a police lineup by Hannock, and on June 23rd, Blum was charged with kidnapping. The media was in a frenzy, and agents were all over the family home of his wife and kids. They were removing clothing, taking whatever they wanted as potential evidence. A second search of Blum's Lake property was being organized. The family of Katie Poirier still had hope that she could be found alive, that their daughter, with aspirations of a career in law enforcement, would have the opportunity to pursue those dreams. Blum's property is more than 20 acres. So in this second search, more than 100 members of the National Guard, as well as several hundred volunteers participated in the effort. Sheriff Hodep had also received a tip from a jailhouse informant. Well, here we go. The That's old jailhouse keep, informant. You keep your mouth shut, Woo. man. Why do you tell people? I'm not saying that's what you should do. But. Well, and, and here's this one's a little different. So this is different. An old cellmate of Donald Blum's offered a critical tip. According to the informant, he had previously advised Donald Blum on how to dispose of a body. Oh, man. Quote, the best way to get rid of a body, dig six feet below a fire ring, burn the corpse, and backfill the grave with the ashes. Sweet Pete. Oh, my gosh. In the second property search, law enforcement discovered a grisly piece of evidence. What appeared to be a human jawbone and a charred human tooth. The evidence was found upon closer inspection of Donald Blum's fire pit. Of course. And Hodup would say later in interviews, he never would have thought to do that if not for this tip. And now that he always does it during his investigations, this guy, career history, solved a lot of big crimes, really, really, really good, good Hmm. police. Wow. The next several months were nothing short of a whirlwind. Initially, Donald Blum continuously denied involvement in the abduction of Katie Poirier. And finally, on September 8th, he told Sheriff Hodep he was ready to confess his involvement, Poirier's abduction and murder. Before Blum started, started his interview with the police, his state-appointed attorney met with him to extensively discuss the repercussions of his statement and his confession. Blum verified on the record before the interview began that his counsel had met with him for several hours between September 6th and 8th and that he intended to give a statement. But first, he wanted his counsel to negotiate some terms on his behalf. And predominantly, his terms were that his family would be left alone, their property would be left alone, and that the police would quit harassing them in a nutshell is kind of what his his main terms were. So in this, and again, major recognition that he understands what he's doing at this point. So Blum admitted to abducting Katie, driving her to his property near Carrick, choking her to death, and then throwing her body into the fire pit and burning it with fence posts. He claimed no accelerant was used and affirmed the bone fragments found were those of Katie Poirier. He also said he didn't rape her, but he was likely thinking about it. I'm going to I'm throwing my bullshit flag. He hadn't presented. Yeah. He couldn't remember many of the specific details, likely because he was drunk and on prescription medications at the time. Or because he was withholding them and Possibly. not saying well, them. Well, he, he, he's a drunk, so it's like... I know, there, but he's, yeah. not, he's, he's not giving up everything. There's no way. 
Well, he he wasn't considered super forthcoming in in his admissions, and it was a lot of them probing and him mm-hmm. kind of answering. Mm-hmm. So then on September 16th, it's the grand jury indictment. Blom starts having second thoughts about entering a guilty plea. And for the first time ever, he said he was reluctant to enter a guilty plea until there were conclusive DNA tests for the bone fragments found on his property. It appeared Blum would be heading to trial after all. He made efforts to rescind his statement, claiming that when he confessed, he was under immense pressure from being in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. He was taking more than 10 medications. His wife was suicidal from all the media pressure. His trailer had been burned down. Someone threw a Molotov cocktail at his family's house. His daughters didn't feel safe leaving the house. He alleged the police were threatening his wife with criminal charges. They were going to take the kids. And because all of this, he felt pressured, even morally obligated, to confess to something he didn't do so that he could give relief to his family. You know, this is where this is where it always bothers me is, you know, his kids didn't do anything. His wife likely didn't do anything. I'm going to assume that at this point, you know, why do why do people do that? Why do I mean why? His kids sure as heck didn't do anything. You know, it, it, that 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 bothers me a lot. Right. Like they didn't know they didn't know that that this guy was some creep and those aren't his yeah. actual I don't believe right. they're he his, said his stepchildren, yes. but you know and 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 somebody's going to throw a Molotov cocktail at the at the home like come on. come on. Like what are you doing? You're no you're no better at that point. Donald Blum's trial started in June of 2000 and the evidence against him was pretty massive. Over 50 witnesses were called to testify during the case. The video surveillance, witness reports, and testimonies from the two women whom Blum had kidnapped in 1983, as well as his confession, were the primary pieces of evidence presented against Blum. Blum himself took the stand, and he was grilled for more than three hours, and he sobbed through much of it. A lot lot of observers thought he was a real whiner on the stand. Blum claimed he had never owned a New York Yankees jersey. However, his brother testified that he had given the Blum family a box of old clothing, which included that New York York Yankees jersey. The two women he kidnapped in 83, the ones who resembled Katie when they were younger, testified about what Donald Blum had done to them. And while the witness testimonies were valuable, what really solidified the case came from the forensics. A forensic scientist in the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, that's the BCA, a member of their microanalytical section testified that the tooth recovered from Blum's fire pit was consistent with a human tooth number 18, which had also been treated with a dental alloy that had to be bonded to the tooth with Reli X Arc. So they're getting right down to the chemistry of this stuff. Finally, a faculty member at the University of Minnesota School of Dentistry testified that the recovered tooth had been treated with a very specific acid etch technique that was verified against dental records. Based on comparisons between the tooth and jawbone fragments found in the fire pit and Poirier's dental x-rays and medical records, the state's forensic odontologist, Dr. Ann Norlander, as well as a second forensic dentist, testified to a reasonable degree of medical certainty the tooth belonged to Poirier. Their conclusions were based on both the teeth had a extra distinctively similar looking root. Typically, tooth number 18 only has uh, has two. This one had extra. A comparison of Poirier's dental x-rays of 1994 and 1997 
Two x-rays of the recovered tooth and jaw fragments revealed various conformities in root, shape, size, and tooth structure. Structure. The recovered tooth also contained zirconium and silicone on its surface and roughly the same proportions present in the bonding agent. The recovered tooth contained a small amount of zinc, which was used in an earlier filling of Poirier's tooth in 1991. And ultimately, both the recovered tooth and Poirier's tooth had been filled using the acid etched method of cavity filling, which was pretty relevant because that specific type of filling had only been in existence for like less than six months. And Poirier had been to the dentist in the month prior to her abduction. So those are just just crazy amount of forensics that brought this case home because the DNA on the jawbone was inconclusive. They could not link the jawbone to Poirier because it had been burned Burned. too badly Mm -hmm. in the fire. It eliminated all source trace of DNA. So this tooth in many ways, really solidified the case. Right, right. Hmm. Furthermore, Blum's barber confirmed that his hair had blonde tips at the time of the abduction, which is why he appeared younger. A lot of witnesses, and in the in the video, they thought the man in the video was around 25 years old. That was why. Um, they, I mean, they pulled out all the stops. Dude, it's they so brought good. In, they brought in a barber. They brought in his brother about a about Yankees clothes the Yankees jersey um they brought in his former victims and of course they could because he was convicted of it there was a big battle over that too I'm sure that I'm sure there was you know if any defense attorney is gonna fight that you know I mean but I mean holy smokes like this is um this is they they were ready oh yeah they, 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 they brought it. it mm-hmm. This, this, this case was really expensive. It, they spent over $200,000 for this uh, total case, which is really a lot. And, uh, for a rural community with very few resources. So Blum's defense attorney is Rodney Broden and he presented his first uh, witness on August 7th. His uh, key witness was Amy Blum, Donald's wife. She testified that her husband had come home at 9.30 PM on the night of Katie's disappearance. They went to bed and when she woke up in the morning, The coffee was ready, so she believed her husband was home the entire night. She also accused the police of threatening to to take her children away if she didn't answer the questions in the way they wanted her to. She also denied ever seeing any baseball jersey in the clothing given to them by Blum's brother. At one point in the trial, Donald Blum expressed angrily to the family that he was not the murderer, and he got on it heated exchange with he, Katie's with, mother. With Katie's family? With, he, yes. Like in, in trial. Oh, man. He got into a heated exchange with them. And, and he again, he denied involvement and reiterated previous statements of pressure that led him to the false confession. He said that he was at Moose Lake in the evening for fishing, but returned home by 10 p.m., well before the time of Katie's abduction. Blum's testimony was viewed as wildly inconsistent. On August 16th, 2000, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found Donald Albin Blum guilty of murdering Kathleen Katie Poirier. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. However, our story doesn't quite end there. Ugh. Donald Blum was poised to vehemently appeal the verdict. 
He sought relief from the post-conviction court on the grounds that he was denied his right to effective assistance of trial, denied self-representation. He was denied a fair trial on excessive media coverage. He wanted a change of venue. He wanted to present extra evidence. And he also claimed he was denied his right against self-incrimination on the grounds his statement to the police was not voluntary. In the wake of this would-be appeal, a shocking new witness came forward. Amy Blum, the wife of Donald Blum. And this time, Amy Blum would be offering a statement, not for the defense of her husband, but for his prosecution. She was terrified that he might win his appeal. Amy Thank Blum you for doing the right thing. Amy Blum contacted two Minnesota legislators stating that Donald Blum had abused her for years and she believed he had murdered Katie. She admitted her testimony was a lie, a lie she told because she was living in total fear of Donald Blum. Amy was ready to recant her entire testimony, feeling safe. Now with Donald Blum in prison, she was free from his dominating power over her. It was safe for the truth to come out. Amy told them that she had been abused by Donald Blum for seven years, their entire relationship. She felt guilty, ashamed, and helpless. Because she was, I mean, she was a victim herself. She hoped one day she might get forgiveness from the family of Katie, from Katie, but Amy said she couldn't have prevented what happened. She had no control or say in anything her husband did. He went to the lake property frequently to fish and told her very little. Amy Blum had no idea that Donald had been married twice prior to her. When he offered to take her last name, she recalls feeling flattered. But really, Donald was looking for a new identity. I now know, quote, I now know, she said to a reporter, that I was in many ways his hostage, paralyzed to speak up. Oh, oh that poor woman. I mean, this, yes. And, and sadly, these thoughts and feelings are Common among women who are targets of domestic violence, including physical and mental abuse. Mothers are particularly mm-hmm. more vulnerable. They yeah. feel trapped. They feel demoralized. And sadly, Blum's sons affirmed the violence, describing Amy's bruises and black eyes. And Amy just, she attributed his foul moods to a bipolar disorder. And she learned to behave in submissive ways that didn't provoke him. No. And this, this is why, guys, this is why DVCC might not Again, courageforchange.org. Amy Blum also believed that her husband had committed other crimes, including other murders. And she wasn't the only one who believed that. Investigators suspected Blum was involved with many previous killings. The ease with which he led Katie out of the store made it clear to them he had done this before. In 2004, an appeals court issued an 81-page ruling that upheld his conviction. While his trial had not been perfect, the justices determined it had been fair, and they saw no reason to reverse the decision or grant a new trial. The question remained for investigators. Is Donald Blum a serial killer? Was he responsible for more crimes? Investigators believed Blum may have been involved in a series of murders dating back as far as the 1970s. They believe that his modus operandi, his M.O., was to change his name and appearance after each incident. Dennis Fire, a Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension agent, long suspected Blum to be a serial killer. According to Fire, Blum admitted that he, quote, often would leave for entire nights, would be using alcohol and drugs, and would not remember when he came home the next day where he had been or what he had did. At the time of his arrest, 
investigators were looking at similar crimes, including the murder of 19-year-old Wisconsin student Holly Spangler. In 93, Spangler's decomposed body was found in the woods of a blooming Bloomington, Minnesota park. Blum was living in the area under the name Donald Pence at the time and was also a sex offender. Another case studied by investigators was the strangulation of Wilma Johnson. Her body was found near St. Paul Cathedral in 83. Blum admitted to being at the crime scene but denied killing Johnson. Blum told investigators he might have killed a man near St. Paul's High Bridge, but a body was never found. Quote, we feel pretty strongly Donald Blum has been involved in a number of them, said Fire, who had just begun his 36th year at the BCA. The experienced homicide investigator remains convinced the man locked up, Donald Blum, in a Pennsylvania prison, holds the key to several unsolved murders in Minnesota. When asked if he believed Blum will go to his grave a serial killer, Fire only replied, quote, I believe he will. I believe he will. Wow. Following the tragic abduction of young Katie Poirier, the state legislature in Minnesota strengthened Minnesota sex offender laws with longer prison terms for repeat offenders. This ultimately led to uh, a major modernization of law enforcement databases, streamlined communications, and increased offender accountability. The bill was informally known as Katie's Law. How many how many stories have we read? You know, I've said it a million times that stories like this, the ones that change legislation are the ones that I'm drawn to. And as frustrating as it is, it's so sad that it takes such tragedy and so many, so many crimes like this for those things to change. Why can't we be proactive? That I'm becoming increasingly frustrated over that. The the more we cover these stories. Um, also grateful, thankful that they, they, these laws have been changed. You know, I'm not, certainly not denying that. But are we doing better? I, I, like, I, 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 need, I need somebody who has more knowledge and understanding and research, I guess, to let me know whether or not we are doing better. I'd like to believe there's more awareness for the resources, uh, but I, I just don't, I, I guess I don't, I don't truly know what, the state of sexual violence is right now because it seems like it never goes away. Well, in, in the, the holes in the, in the justice system that we do have, where are those holes happening? You know, speaking to somebody involved in the domestic violence world, you know, she's, um, she's happy to point out that judges, you know, aren't, are, are certainly an issue. Right. And, and I would agree with that. I, I would absolutely agree with that because, you know, what, what continuing education do they have to do? What do they, you know, I mean, you know, they might, and this is not all encompassing. I'm not saying all judges, you know, but if, if you sentence somebody to a, a, a victim impact panel, you know, and for a DUI, right, they have to hear the victim impact statement. Somebody who is, who is a survivor of something like that. Okay. Well, what, you know, how do we change that so that judges, law enforcement officers, any, anybody in the system aren't desensitized to it? That's, I'm putting my soapbox away. It's frustrating. It, it is super frustrating. I, I'd say it's, again, it's also a reason to hammer home um, the DBCC here in, mm-hmm. in Minot. And, they do amazing and things. They, they really do incredible things. Uh, we're, we're super grateful for them. And they, they, want, they want through us, they want to, we want to communicate again. If, if you're experiencing violence from an intimate partner in your life, y- you need to get help. If you know somebody who's going through that. Anybody in your household. You, 
you, you, maybe you, you can call the DVCC and just ask them what your best course of action are. Cause mm-hmm. the reality is that so many people are going to turn to their friends and family first right. for help. And there's right. only so much we can do. There's only so much advice we can give as amateurs. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, the professionals at the DVCC here might, I can help you. The crisis line is 701-857-2200. It's courage, the number four change.org. The sources for today's episode. Donald Blum, a repeat sex offender, finally stopped by Catherine Ramsland, the state of Minnesota Supreme Court case files, the mn.gov law library, the published pen.com, law.justia.com, the the Bemidji Pioneer, the article, A Crime Remembered, written by Justin Glaw, the Duluth News Tribune, minnesota.cbslocal.com, the Baltimore Sun, the article, NASA scientists help clarify clues in Florida missing girl case by Frank D. Roylance historic-newspapers.com. And thank you to Dr. Shauna Antangney for her help in researching this case. And thank you to all of you, our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you all. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. It's Midwest Murder. 